This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith in for Simi. We've got awesome coverage coming up for you uh, on the uh, wild city council meeting last night in Surrey. I got Allison Patton, the Surrey City Councilor, standing by. She'll be on just after the bottom of the hour after your news. Uh, we also got Councilor Stephen Pettigrew on the show uh, today. Uh, Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown on as well. She was in the wild co- city council me- chambers last night. Here's the deal on this. Should there be a referendum in Surrey now on a new municipal police force? That's what this whole fight is about. Really boils down to the budget that barely passed last night has got a hiring freeze on for new cops and for new firefighters in the city. The city's tightening its belt here as they move to a local police force. That's going to be more expensive, and at least in the short term, you're going to have fewer cops. This is what people voted for when they brought McCallum in. I'll tell you, when he was running for mayor, I just knew early on he was going to win because I thought he was really connecting with people on the SkyTrain issue and the crime issue. Even the name of his party, the Safe Surrey Coalition, I thought was a very smart marketing move. I'm not surprised that he won. But now I think people are getting a bit of a rude awakening and a bit of a wake-up call on exactly how much this local police force is going to cost. And the news that you're going to have fewer cops, at least in the short term, is surprising people as well. In a city that needs more cops, you got more crime and fewer cops in Surrey than you do in Vancouver, New West, Delta, all these other cities. What is wrong with this picture? So now you've got a growing chorus of people saying, wait a sec, we know McCallum won the election, but there's a lot of stuff we didn't know about. Maybe we should have a rethink on this. Should there be a referendum in Surrey on a new municipal police force? Even the local MP, Ken Hardy, reelected as a liberal MP, even he's saying, waiting into this thing now, saying, let's have a referendum. So would you say yes? We need the referendum for clarity, or would you say, no, it's already been settled. McCallum won the election. Deal with it. At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find the hot question today. Find it there. Vote on it today. At CKNW on Twitter. Give me a follow while you're there at Mike Smith News on Twitter. S-M-Y-T-H at Mike Smith News on Twitter. And phone me on the buzz line today and tell me what you think. Should there be a referendum on a local police force in the city of Surrey, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. That's Surrey City Council last night. Wow, what a wild council meeting. In Surrey last night, chaos, frustration, anger. You could use all those words to describe Surrey City Hall last night. 400 people packed into the council chambers. Hundreds more stood outside in the lobby as council passed that controversial budget for next year that does not include money for new RCMP officers, firefighters, and community centers. Let's talk to one of the city councillors now, Councillor Allison Patton. She is with the Safe Surrey Coalition and Mayor Doug McCallum. Councillor, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. What was it like in there last night? It sounds pretty wild. Well, you know what it reminded me of is um, in my years of studies in psychology, 
when you get a large group together and their behavior. So it was a really interesting study on our human behavior for me last night. What was it like a mob mentality? Um, you know what? It, it was just, um, you know, it wasn't exactly funny at all. And it, there was a bit of a concern at times for, um, you know, emotions. So emotions were rising at certain yeah. points. So, yeah, it, it was... Um, yeah, it was an interesting situation, let's put it this way. At one point, the mayor said that we're not going to have any debate or councillors are not going to be discussing the budget because of safety concerns, and some of your some of yeah. your fellow councillors were not happy about that. How do you defend that, right. or what do you say about it? Well, I think the thing was, um, we did... we um, Historically, there had been another time when our council, we were concerned that there might be a, um, a little bit of... Um, you know, ruckus in, in the council chamber. So our mayor had, this was months ago, um, had, suge- had suggested a protocol for us. And the protocol is, you know, if there was something like that happening, uh, to call a recess, because if, if we leave the chambers, then it helps to calm things down quicker. And so what happened last night was um, he did call for that, but not everyone left. And so the, what happened was, unfortunately, then, there's still um, the, it was the people weren't able to calm down as quickly because there was still half of the council. There were still four of them remaining in the chambers, which right. it would have been a, a little bit more efficient if everyone had left, given it a few minutes, and then we could have all come back, and then there wouldn't have been that probably a less of a safety issue. But because um, not everyone left, then then the crowds didn't calm down as quickly as they could have. Okay, the budget, the city's budget did pass last night by a vote of five to four. You voted in favor of the budget along with the mayor and the, and the Safe Surrey Coalition councillors there. This is a controversial yes. budget, councillor. does not include any new money for more RCMP officers or firefighters or community centres that some people would like to see. How do you defend this budget and why did you vote for it? Well, like I was mentioning um, to Global, I think this is a visionary budget and I think that it's our job to look to the future, not always looking to today. Uh, when we were elected, we were elected on our promises, so those are what we're fulfilling. And But on top of that, what I was really impressed with our city staff, they've been working on this budget with um, with, the, with the different departments since July. And they went back and forth probably at least half a dozen times being pressed to keep being innovative and creative in how to solve the problems that we are trying to deal with in the city. And what's amazing is they came up with these excellent solutions that set our city up for powerful, a powerful future that we can look toward in within 10 years. And so budgets that are visionary like that are not always understood by the people in the moment because not everyone lives for 10 years out. They live for today. So that's where the controversy can sometimes come about because not everyone is thinking in those terms. Yeah, but I mean, you've got even some of the city councillors that you ran with on the Safe Surrey Coalition who have, have quit the party and are now sitting as independents. Even they voted against this budget last night. So it appears that the council is divided. This budget just barely passed last night by one vote. The city clearly seems to be divided, judging by the, the crowds that showed up last night. Are you, would you acknowledge that, that the city and the council appears to be very sharply divided here over the way this council's going forward? I think our council's extremely functional compared, if you compare it to any other city, uh, 
the 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 council is actually working very well, and we need we need different voices on council. You don't want everyone to sound like a, a broken record, and so it's nice to see diversity. And I think that um, we are an excellent council, and I, I I don't see the the same thing that you see. What do you say to the Surrey Board of Trade, who put out a statement yesterday that they're very concerned and disappointed by this budget? that it does not have new money for more police officers in a city that doesn't have enough cops. Uh, Surrey Board of Trade President Anita Huberman is calling for the provincial government to step in here and do a review of policing in the city to make sure the city's safe. What do you say to the Board of Trade? Well, I had talked with Anita in a meeting um, in the springtime, and she'd asked, um, well, I'd asked her if she wanted some input on how to... Um, you know, work with the city, and she did uh, say, sure, she's always open to input. And so I just think that a Board of Trade's role is is not to be political. I think a Board of Trade's role is to represent, as, a, as I am a small business owner, uh, the business owners, and to uh, help them do better in their business. So I, um, I did give Anita some advice, and uh, I don't see her following it. And so, um, you know, that's, that's not surprising what she's saying. I do feel that she's too political in her role. Well, I'm I'm sure she would say that this is not being political. This is about a board of trade that wants to see a safe city. That would be good for business. And and they don't, and they're concerned about the direction of this council with no new police officers being hired for the second year in a row. Well, she, she's absolutely entitled to her thoughts on that. What, What about the chief of the RCMP? He's also concerned. He wanted to hire 12 new cops this year and he's, he's worried too. I think he's moved on as far as I know. (laughs) <laughs> Has he? Okay. Um, l- let me ask you about uh, a- an incident last night. This this got kind of rough in there. It got kind of wild. And some of the reporters who were on the scene last night overheard some racist comments from some members of the crowd. They were yelling. There was a, there were people blaming South Asians for gang violence. There was hecklers shouting anti-Indo-Canadian comments. Do you have any concerns or thoughts on that? Or did you did you hear any kind of language like that yourself last night? Uh, I personally didn't, but I was a little bit worried. Um, what I, what I really felt from, especially the Indo-Canadian community, was a lot of love coming toward us and a lot of support. And but I was concerned about the opposition group uh, um, going to that place. So I, I didn't hear any of it personally, but I did have some concerns about that, and I was hoping that wouldn't happen. Because I really think bridging gaps is more important, building a strong community. Uh, we're all part of the community. We all belong here, and we need to work together to make this city even more strong than it already is. Okay, Councillor, one more question for you. Should there be a referendum held in the city of Surrey on whether to move to a local police force? Ken Hardy, who is a Liberal MP in the area, recently re-elected for the Liberals, he's weighed into on this thing, waited in on this thing and said, we should have a referendum in Surrey. What are your thoughts there? Well, I was part of probably over 100 speeches during our election campaign where our mayor, um, who was running at the time, said repeatedly, at least 100 times that I was there for, and I'm sure another 100 that I wasn't there for, that this election was the referendum. Yeah. Full stop. Councillor, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. It's really nice to talk to you again. Have a wonderful day. Merry Christmas. Thank you. Same to you. Surrey City Councillor Allison Patton. She is a member of Mayor Doug McCallum's Safe Surrey Coalition. They got their budget through last night. It was a close vote. 
As we continue talking about that wild city council meeting last night in Surrey, they passed the Surrey budget five to four after a raucous meeting there in council. One of the big sticking points here is no new money to hire new police officers or new firefighters as the city transitions to a local police department. Make sure you vote in our hot question today. Do you think there should be a referendum on this? Ken Hardy, he's a liberal MP in Surrey, recently re-elected. He's been calling for a referendum. He'll be my guest later in the show, so make sure you stick around for that. Let's check in with Global News senior reporter Janet Brown, who was in the council chambers last night. Hi, Janet. Good morning, Mike. Yeah, I've never seen anything like what unfolded in the Surrey Council Chambers last night inside Surrey City Hall. Uh, first of all, it started, of course, with the rallies outside on the plaza outside of Surrey City Hall. Uh, the 5.30 rally in support of the budget, the 6 p.m. opposed to the budget, and that group calling themselves Speak Up Surrey. And, you know, um, you have to give credit, really, to both sides for being so organized and getting so many people out to both rallies, and, and for everybody being so passionate about this issue really you know but as I say I have never seen anything like that in my life I covered Vancouver Council for close to 18 years I've covered Surrey Council for many years and I've never seen one rally never mind two rallies before a council votes on the final budget and and then everybody piling in to, to Surrey City Hall, lining up to try and get a seat in the council chambers. Uh, there is a big sliding door and windows. I don't know how to describe it really, Mike. At the back of the Surrey Council Chambers, they opened that up so that people in the lobby could stand and watch what was unfolding inside. And then and then to hear people yelling and screaming and standing up and pointing at the council and the council getting up and, and walking out. And then we had Councillor... Pettigrew stand up, cross his arms and, and hold his back to the mayor and, and the other councillors. Honestly, you know what? I woke up this morning and, and I told myself, you know, you know, when you wake up from a dream sometimes and you wonder if it was real or not. Well, I woke up this morning and I and I asked myself, was was that a bad dream last night? Did that really happen? I mean, that's how shocking it was to me. What 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 I witnessed at council chambers. And to tell you the truth, too, I was a little worried, just a little worried in the back of my mind. Could there possibly be violence yeah. uh, in this group of people? Because people were so passionate. And I I called Surrey RCMP earlier in the the day to say, hey, are you people going to be there? They said they would be nearby if they were needed. Uh, but when I first arrived at Surrey Council last night uh, inside the lobby area, I counted 14 security people as well as two bylaws people. And the head of bylaws for the city of Surrey was also there in his in his uniform. So they were taking taking things very seriously, which was good. I mean, it's good to have security there just in case things get out of hand. But when you see that many security people milling around, you, you do get a little concerned that things could sort of unravel. Um, there was only one door uh, that people could exit. Uh, people couldn't get into the city hall building from the plaza area unless security opened the door so yeah i mean things things seem pretty tense i was glad so happy so glad that people you know for the most part really behave themselves there was yeah. no fisticuffs or anything like that because when people get heated and and yeah. so passionate about such a a heated topic yeah anything could unravel that's for sure so i'm i'm glad everybody behaved themselves but as i say you got to give credit to both sides for for being so passionate getting so many okay. people out for their cause on both sides of this issue 
Janet, great job last night on that story. Thanks for coming on with the update. My pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown. Let's check in now with Frank Buchholz, who's the columnist at Surrey Now Leader Newspaper, also the Peace Arch News. Frank, thanks for coming on. Thanks very much, Mike. There was a wild meeting last night, Frank, and it's got everybody's talking about the move to a local police force and getting rid of the RCMP, which seems to be at the center of this budget fight and the, and the crowds that we saw last night. I thought you wrote an, in, an interesting recent column in which you said, look, maybe it's time to put this thing to a referendum and uh, have a real good sober second look at this whole, this whole issue. Give me your thoughts on that. Why do you think a referendum would be a good idea? Well, uh, my column was based on the uh, post that Ken Hardy had put up, which you referred yeah. to. And, uh, you know, I think Ken is looking at it as a Surrey resident, but also as an elected official from another <clears throat> level of government and saying the community is really divided. There's big questions about cost and effectiveness. And uh, really the best way to sort that out is with the referendum. And as I mentioned in the column, it seems like... Uh, Federal and provincial governments and even local governments seem reluctant to have referenda, even though it's a very good way to get to the bottom of these types of discussions. Okay, well, I already just talked to uh, Surrey City Councillor Allison Patton, who, of course, is one of the mayor's loyal safe Surrey councillors there at City Hall, and I asked her about this idea for a referendum, and she said it's not necessary because the city already had a referendum. It was called an election. McCallum won, and people should just deal with it. Well, and uh, she's certainly correct that McCallum in the election campaign made that point over and over. He says, we are going to bring in a Surrey City Police Force. We're going to start that ball rolling at the inaugural meeting. We're also going to change LRT to SkyTrain. Right. And McCallum got uh, enough votes to win. He certainly didn't get a majority of votes. The reason he won the mayor's chair back after an absence of 13 years is because the there was a three-way split for mayor. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And the citizens were very unhappy with the Surrey First Council, who basically, uh, unlike what Alison Patton described, sat there like bumps on a log for most of the four years under Linda Hepner. And I think because of that, there's been this pent-up desire to, to see some real discussion about things. And, I mean, that's what this has led to. And there's clearly a big divide among the citizens of Surrey as to whether the RCMP are necessary or whether a new police force is necessary. Okay, it certainly seems that way to me that you've got a divided city council and you've got a divided city. I mean, you've got the even the head of the Board of Trade in, in the city saying that she's concerned about the direction of the council. And you've got city councilors saying, well, you're just, pract- you're just uh, grinding a political axe here against this council. I mean, from your perspective on the ground there, is the city badly divided over these issues? Well, I think it's certainly divided on the policing issue, and I think the reason it's divided is because the council has split. It's split largely on this issue, and uh, the report that was commissioned by council is showing that there's going to be less Surrey police on the ground than there are Surrey RCMP right now. Right. And Surrey is growing rapidly. We just had a new hospital site announced last week by the Premier and the Minister of Health. We need services. We don't need them 10 years from now. We need them now. We need more police, more firefighters, more community centers, and we certainly need health and education services, which largely come from the province and have badly fallen behind over the last 20 to 30 years. Frank, thanks for coming on. You bet.
I appreciate it. Frank Buchholz, Surrey Now leader, Peace Arch News. He says there should be a referendum. Talk about legal pot in BC. The liquor distribution branch of BC, which is responsible for distributing legal marijuana products in the province, says they are going to start shipping edible cannabis starting tomorrow and will be made available at private and public licensed and legal retailers across the province. Uh, so edibles coming to a store near you. Let's talk about this now with Deepak Anand, Vice President, Government Relations for Cannabis Compliance Incorporated. Hi. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks for coming on again. Um, what do you think about BC rolling out the sale of edible cannabis. Are we a little late to the party here? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's, I, I don't think this one is entirely BC's fault in terms of them not rolling it out. The federal government uh, only made it possible for companies that are manufacturing these products to have them available as of yesterday. So the fact that we might be, you know, a few days or a week late to the party, you know, isn't significant. I think, Mike, what's worth mentioning is uh, that, you know, these are the products that have been available on the sort of uh, uh, illicit or uh, legacy market for a number of years. Uh, and so if the intent is to eliminate that section of the market, which is a policy objective by the federal government, then these products are desperately needed. And that's what people want access to. Yeah, I don't think it's much of a newsflash to say if you go online, there are lots of black market or gray market retailers that have been selling these edible products for a long time. I mean, it's not like they're hard to find. You know, now suddenly the government say, oh, hey, we're going to be selling it too. Well, you know, there's lots of people selling this stuff. Right. Well, absolutely. And and it just speaks to that, you know, the fact that not a lot of people want to be consuming cannabis in the traditional form, which is not everyone wants to roll up a joint and, and smoke it or, you know, uh, have access to products that way. And, uh, you know, for those that don't know, those are the only legal forms of cannabis that have been permitted so far has really been dried cannabis and cannabis oil, uh, which from an ingestion perspective has been particularly challenging. Not, you know, a lot of people want these brownies and cookies and, you know, other product forms that that have been available for a number of years uh, very freely. Okay, what are the federal regulations around the, the type of edibles that can be sold? Because I know there was a big fight about what kind of flavors would be allowed, the portion sizes, the strength of these products. How did they figure that out in the end? Yeah, one of the big things that's been a contentious issue somewhat has been the 10 milligrams of THC per package. So THC, for those that don't know, is the primary psychoactive ingredient in cannabis that's responsible to get you that stone or high feeling. Um, and, uh, you know, the federal government's basically said that the maximum that you can have per package is 10 milligrams per serving size, uh, which doesn't mean that you can't consume multiple serving sizes. It just means that, that in any one serving size, the max can be 10 milligrams. Uh, Quebec's actually half that to 5 milligrams per serving size. Uh, BC's kept the federal standard. Uh, but notwithstanding that, there's some in the market that complain that that's too low. Personally, I think that that's a good balance. I think that for a novice cannabis user, 10 milligrams could actually get you quite stoned and, and would give you that psychoactive effect. So uh, the fact that that's what the federal government's landed is, is probably not a terrible thing. Uh, the other thing we're going to see is uh, on the beverage side, there's been a lot of talk of cannabis beverages. You're not going to see cannabis being mixed in with alcohol or caffeine, which, uh, which again, I think is a sensible public policy move. Uh, but you will see cannabis beverages. There's a number of companies that have already been working on this. Those are some products you'll see. Uh, the federal government's also said that you can't limit 
cannabis products can't actually be appealing to kids, so you can't really have a gummy bear. We'll perhaps see gummy squares, uh, but but there will be, uh, you know, restrictions on, on packaging and labeling and marketing so that it's not appealing to kids as well. When are the cannabis beverages coming? Uh, well, theoretically, they're legal as of today. We've seen them in at least one province. Uh, as far as when BC is going to get that, I would suspect uh, very, very shortly here. Okay, and speaking of Deepak Anand, he's a consultant to the, the legal cannabis industry. What do you think overall about how the B.C. government has rolled out uh, legal marijuana here? I mean, this is supposed to be sort of ground zero for B.C. bud, and yet, I don't know, the government doesn't, is certainly not making a lot of money on it, and they've been a slow, there's been a slow ramp up of legal stores. Your thoughts? Yeah, the the store rollout has actually been very, very underwhelming. The number of stores that are uh, open and available in the province today are nearly, you know, are certainly lacking and nearly not enough to be able to satisfy demand. I think the rollout's been extremely slow. Uh, so I'd say the retail rollout has been challenging, one. I think the second thing that the, the provincial government hasn't done is taken advantage of this ability to sell products at Farmgate. Uh, and for those that don't know what Farmgate is, it's basically much like you go to Kelowna and you go to a winery, you can sample uh, some wine on site uh, and basically buy it on site. This is a, a very similar type uh, provision that the federal government has actually allowed to happen, but BC hasn't taken advantage of that. Uh, you and I both know, Mike, that there's a number of cultivators in, in, in the valley, in central Okanagan, et cetera, that have been cultivating cannabis for years that would love to be able to start to sell products on site without, without having to go through the bureaucracy, which is the liquor distribution branch. Uh, and there are federal regulations that allow for that, but the fact that BC hasn't actually enabled that is, is, is quite challenging, and I think that could have been a very simple public policy move uh, to take advantage and make the money at the provincial level. Well, it's a little surprising, actually, when you mention that, because from the very start of this, the B.C. government was saying that we want to see small craft kind of boutique growers uh, offering product instead of just, you know, big multinational corporations growing, growing pot. Let's have some small specialized products, which, which makes sense. You know, when you think about it, you take a look at the craft beer industry in B.C., how it's taken off in such a big way. They could, couldn't they do the same thing with craft cannabis? Yeah, absolutely. And it's quite a shame that, you know, you haven't really seen craft cannabis really get on. I know a few different groups are working on uh, lobbying for this and trying to make it happen. But really, the bottleneck is the, is the provincial government. It's actually not the federal government in this instance. Uh, and so I think a, a lot needs to happen uh, from a provincial government perspective to make to make this successful. I think that uh, the public safety minister has kind of alluded to some bottlenecks that might be sort of, you know, easing over time. But uh, uh, they need to happen far more uh, quickly if you are to be successful. Uh, just as in comparison, Mike, you look at Alberta, our neighboring province, I think they've done a spectacular job on the rollout of cannabis legalization, arguably uh, the best rollout as far as uh, the provinces have been concerned. So a uh, long way still for B.C., and, and a number of things that need to change from a policy perspective. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. That is Deepak Anand, Vice President, Cannabis Compliance Incorporated. Getting close to the end of the year, a good time to think about your personal finances. What kind of moves could you make before the calendar year flips over? Got a great guy to talk about it. Jamie Gollumbeck, Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning for CIBC in Toronto. Jamie, thanks for taking the time. Pleasure. Okay, first of all, let's talk about when your your tax return is due, like in the new year. When do you got to file your taxes by? 
Well, the good news is you don't have to file it uh, until the end of April for most people. If you've got right. self-employment income, either you or your spouse or partner, you actually have until June the 15th. So right. lots of time to actually file the return. But, of course, any planning that you want to do for 2019 has got to be done in the next two weeks. It's yeah. too late to do it when you file your return. Right. And if let's say you're expecting to get a uh, a refund, does it make sense this is skipping into the new year for just a second. Does it make sense to file your tax return early, as early as possible, in order to get your your clause on your refund? Does that make sense? I would say, yeah, I would say normally it does make sense. Obviously, you want to get your money back as soon as possible. But I just be caution you, uh, but don't file before you make sure you have all your all your slips. Because that can right. be an issue for some investors that have, you know, some mutual funds and they've got uh, investment accounts and they're getting slips in the mail. Um, those slips don't necessarily all have to be sent to you, some by the end of February, some by the end of March. So as long as you know what you have and look at last year's and see what should be coming in. In fact, you can go online and see many of the slips uh, electronically, even through the CRA feature. But just make sure that if you're going to file early, which is usually sort of late February, early March, just make sure you've got all the slips so you don't have problems later on right. that you've missed something. Okay, two weeks to go in the calendar year, as you mentioned. So let's talk about stuff that maybe people should be thinking about doing right now. So let's talk about, well, your RSP, so your retirement savings. Do, uh, is there any advantage to making an RSP contribution before the end of the calendar year? In most situations, no, other than the fact, of course, that the money will grow tax-free a little bit longer. Uh, at the end of the day, RSP room carries forward from year to year. We have the normal deadline, which is 60 days after the end of the year. So March 1st is your sort of typical RSP deadline. So there really really is no rush uh, to make that RSP contribution by December 31st because you do have that time uh, until March 1st. And think, in fact, this year you've got the extra day, March 2nd, because March 1st falls on a, on a Sunday in 2020. So you've oh, got okay. that extra time make that contribution and still claim deduction on your 2019 return. Okay, does tax-free savings account, does that work the same way too? Exactly the same. Yeah. So again, there's no limit in terms of the length of time you can carry forward your unused TFSA room. So obviously we say if you've got money lying around in a non-registered account uh, sitting around at the bank, why not just make that a TFSA contribution as soon as possible? Certainly no rush, certainly no deadline. You can do that at any time and any amount that you don't use can be carried forward to any future year. Okay, how about if you've got a registered education savings plan? I got two boys in high school. They're planning to go to university. I got an RESP. I really wish I had put more money into it. That's probably a common lament for a lot of parents out there. But is there any sort of, is there an end of, end of the year deadline for an RESP contribution? Well, ideally, you're trying to make the minimum amount every year to get you the maximum grant. So right now, if you yeah. can afford to put in up to $2,500 a year for each child in an RESP, you're going to get a 20% grant. So that's an additional $500 per year. Now, again, if you miss a year, you can always catch up. Uh, the maximum you can catch up in any one year, though, is sort of two years' worth because they're not going to give you more than $1,000 of grants. So our advice is if you've got the cash and you haven't yet done an RESP, SP contribution for 2019, you probably want to do that by the end of the year to get that 20% or $500 grant for each child in the RESP. Okay, it's a good program, right? It's like free money. 
Oh, it's free money. I tell everybody, where can you get a guaranteed rate of return of 20% on yeah. the first $2,500 a year that you contribute? And I think it's a great, great program. Yeah, for sure. Okay, let's talk about a few other ones, Jamie. How about if you have someone in your family with a disability and you're making renovations in your home for accessibility? Is there any kind of end yeah, of year? Is- Go ahead. It's a fairly new one. So a few years ago, they introduced the Home Accessibility Tax Credit, uh, which allows you, uh, either for someone uh, who's a senior or someone eligible for disability credit, to spend up to $10,000 of renovation and get a 15% credit on their tax credit. Now, that resets every calendar year. So if you're thinking of doing some of those renovations and you do it before the end of the year and you can do it 10000 this year, another 10000 next year, something to consider in the last couple of weeks of the year. How about a charitable contribution? If you want that to, if you want to claim that in your taxes in the spring, you got to make the charitable contribution before the end of the calendar year. That's absolutely right. So charitable contributions are one of the things that have to be done by midnight on December 31st. The good news is that it's so easy to do right now online. You know, most charities have an online giving site. You can go online right up till midnight on December 31st on New Year's Eve, make that donation, and often that receipt will be emailed to you, which means that you can use that when you file your 2019 tax return. Okay, what else jumps out at you, Jamie, for top of your list of uh, tips for end of year? Anything else? Yeah, I think the big one that we often talk to investors about is tax loss selling. So if you've got some stocks that have gone down in value, and of course the markets have been on a on a great run in the last decade or so, but maybe you bought some of those cannabis stocks and they're down. Uh, some of them are down 50%, 80% in the last year. Uh, it might be an opportunity to take those losses, and of course those losses can then be used to offset any other capital gains that you had this year. You can even carry back three calendar years to get a refund of taxes you paid on those capital gains. So again, that opportunity to do that tax loss selling, the deadline for that is December the 27th to make sure that that trade settles by the end of December 31st. So you got about 10 days left to do that that tax loss selling. How about medical expenses? If you got family medical expenses, how does that work? Well, we often tell families to pool all their medical expenses together. So if you've got a spouse or a partner and you've got children, you put them all on one tax return. That's because there's a sort of 3% net income test, uh, minimum amount of, ch- of uh, expenses before you can claim the credit. Uh, you can actually choose any 12-month period that ended in a particular year. So again, there may be some flexibility there depending on when the big medical expenses were uh, to claim those expenses. Of course, they have to be paid. So in other words, if you've got a big expense that's coming up, if you want to pay that uh, now and say in 2019 because it's a current expense, you'd of course be able to claim that when you file your 2019 return. You wait until January or later, 2020, you have to wait a full another year to be able to claim that medical expense. Jamie, some great tips there. You got a website or something people can check, check out? Oh, absolutely. I have a website, jamiegollenbeck.com, and of course, all of our tax advice is available as well on cibc.com. Jamie, thanks for taking the time. Always a pleasure. Thank you. All right, that's Jamie Gollenbeck from CIBC. He's a tax uh, planning expert there with some end-of-the-year tax. We're following the big breaking story for you at this hour, and that's the cyber attack on Life Labs. This is a a lab testing service used by probably most people listening to me know what Life Labs is. There's been a breach there with a cyber attack um, with the the provincial 
FOI commissioner now raising concerns about that. Coming up a little later on, I will speak to the CEO of Life Labs. Uh, that'll be coming up after the next break. So make sure you stick around for that. 15 million Canadians, potential victims of a cyber attack against Life Labs. Most of those people in British Columbia and in Ontario. So that is a big break in story we're following for you. The president and CEO of Life Labs will be my guest here after the next break. So make sure you keep it locked right here for that. Let's go back to the other story we're following today, and that's last night's wild city council meeting at Surrey City Council. Have a listen to this. It sounds like a big protest rally. That's like Surrey City Council last night. Council did narrowly pass a controversial Surrey budget last night, but not before a lot of fireworks there. Let's check in with Surrey City Councillor Stephen Pettigrew now on the line. Councillor, thanks for coming on. Good afternoon to you. Thanks a lot for coming on. Did you ever been in a council meeting like that one? Uh, have you? No. <laughs> no. Well, that'll make two of us. No. It's, yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? What are your thoughts on what went down there last night? Well, I'm uh, really embarrassed about the the show of 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 supposed democracy and what happened last night. It was a it was really shameful that democracy basically was not allowed to flourish last night. It was a, it was a very sad night. For, it was a dark night for Surrey, and I'm hoping this will be. Uh, the bottom of it and hoping from here we can turn around and uh, this will be a point where we can come back up and rise from this okay why do you say it was a dark day for a dark night for democracy there you you're able to vote on the budget now you i know you voted against the budget what went wrong there that was against democracy in your mind well there wasn't actually a vote on the budget the whole process uh if, if people watched it they would have realized that there was no sort of, any sort of uh, democratic process followed in the actual implementation of the budget. There is 20-some-odd items that were part of that, and there was no process followed. When and an item comes before council, it's supposed to go through certain steps, give people opportunity to discuss it. None of that happened last night. It was just rammed through, and there was no, uh, there was no regular democratic process followed. Uh, procedural bylaws were not followed. It was, uh, yeah, so that's what, that's what I was referring to. What are you, what is your, are your chief concerns with this budget? Well, I would say that many people have expressed it quite eloquently that to summarize it is just you're putting all the eggs in one basket. Here we are allocating untold millions of dollars towards the transition of an unproven plan. And this transition is still in the hands of the province right now. And this this may or may not even be passed by the province. And in the meantime, what we're doing is that we're sacrificing. Over the last year, we've made big sacrifices, and we're sacrificing more things for our citizens. For example, rec centers, the uh, police services, those sorts of things, for something that may or may not happen. The, there's too much focus on one item, and that's one of the main concerns about this, is, is the lack of being able to take our funds and to distribute them more evenly throughout right. the city to be able to do that. You, you originally ran for council with Doug McCallum as part of his Safe Surrey Coalition. You're now sitting as an independent there. 
And you ran very clearly on a platform to get rid of the RCMP and bring in a local police force. The mayor says, hey, I'm just doing what I said I would do. That's true. But I also ran on a platform of transparency and community involvement and safety and building infrastructure. And those items seem to have been forgotten by the rest of the Safe Syria Coalition. All they're focusing on is why am I not continuing to support the transition? Well, if I saw a decent plan, I would consider it. This plan that's been presented to us is so full of holes. And I'm not willing to be able to push forth a plan that does not have any substance to it. And especially at the sacrifice of these other things that we demand for. Full public engagement. Anybody that was doing any sort of business, any sort of venture, the first thing you do is you sit down and you put up a business plan and you look at the pros and cons of it. Even in the city, right? When we're going forth, we're opening up new, new land areas, new land use plans. Right. We sit down and we have a discussion process. We go through a, a consultation process with different community groups and the business community. And then it's a process step by step okay. by step, eventually leading to a plan. This wasn't done. Speaking of Surrey City Councillor Stephen Pettigrew, at one point during the meeting last night, Councillor, you stood up and, and physically turned your back on Mayor Doug McCallum. Why did you do that? Because at the beginning of that process, he allowed two of his councillors to read prepared speeches to attack the rest of us. And after those speeches were read, he then, I asked him, I said, Can I, I'd like to be able to speak now. And he looked at me and he said, I'm not going to allow you to speak. I challenged him under the procedural bylaws saying that we have a right to speak and he just ignored me and turned away and started to to plow through. I challenged him a few more times and he just continued to press on. So that was an an unfair and abuse of his power as chair. So at that point I stood up and turned my back on him to show my protest. Let me put something else to you that was was mentioned earlier today by your colleague, Councillor Allison Patton there at City Hall. She says you guys should it when the Surrey uh, Safe Surrey Coalition councillors and the mayor got up and walked out of the council chamber at one point. She says you guys should have left the room too, and it would have helped calm the situation down. Here's what she said to me earlier on the show today. Do we have that clip? Or the no? people weren't able to calm yeah, down as quickly because there was still half of the council. There were still four of them remaining in the chambers, which right. it would have been a, a little bit more efficient if everyone had left given it a few minutes and then we could have all come back and then there wouldn't have been that probably a less of a safety issue but because um not everyone left then then the crowds didn't calm down as quickly as they could have okay briefly counselor what do you say to that yeah i was actually listening to that interview earlier i believe it's also mentioned that there was some sort of a pre-planned um discussion had about what to do in circumstances like this that discussion may have happened but it never included the rest of us that was just discussion amongst them. And that, at that time, so that was something that was what I was just referring to. So what happened there was that they, uh, the mayor allowed the two councillors to speak. They attacked. And then they denied us speaking. And then at that point, they basically shut down all communication. And the crowd became all riled up. And then they took off. So this is something that they actually invoked themselves, that they caused this uproar to happen. If they'd have just allowed democracy to flourish, we wouldn't have had this problem. Last question for you, Councillor. There's been some reports of some racist language that was thrown around in the crowd last night. They're 
Are people blaming South Asians for gang violence in Surrey? There was a heckler there shouting anti-Indo-Canadian comments. Did you hear any of that, or do you have any? And do you have any concerns about it? I did not hear any of that, and of course, I have concerns about that. Yeah. My main concern is why did this happen? And this happened because of the leadership of the mayor allowing to turn our city against each other, allowing to turn brother against brother and citizen against citizen. This should not have happened. This should have been a process from the very beginning to have open communication and dialogue. If that would have happened, then we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. So it was a very, very poor example of of leadership over the last year. Thanks for coming on. All right, you have a great day. Appreciate it. That is Surrey City Councillor Stephen Pettigrew. Let's talk about that other big story we're following for you at this hour, the private and personal information of millions of medical patients in British Columbia and Ontario breached in a cyber attack on the computer systems at Life Labs, the Canadian laboratory testing company. The breach has affected approximately 15 million Life Labs customers. Let's check in now with Charles Brown. He is the president and CEO of Life Labs, speaking to us live from Toronto. Hi. Hi, Mike. Thank you very much for coming on. How did this happen? Well, first, let me just start by saying to our customers that I'm sorry this happened. You know, we understand that their trust may have been shaken, and we're going to do everything we can to get that trust back. It's important health information, and we take that responsibility very seriously. Now, what happened? At the end of October, through proactive surveillance of our IT infrastructure, we identified a cyber attack that involved unauthorized access to our computer systems. Those systems held customer information that could include a name, an address, email login, date of birth, health card number, and even lab test results. Immediately upon discovering the attack, we took a number of steps. We got in some world-class cybersecurity experts to isolate and secure the affected systems. We strengthened our systems, and then we retrieved the data by making a payment. We did this actually in collaboration with uh, experts who are used to negotiations with cyber criminals. We've engaged law enforcement, and then we put together a package of cybersecurity benefits for our customers, such as identity theft and fraud protection insurance. Okay, this is very disturbing information. If this happened at the end of October, why are we just finding out about it now? That's like, what, six, seven weeks ago? So once we ascertained that an event had taken place, it took time to get the data back, understand what sort of data had been taken, Then what we needed to do was we needed to build up infrastructure so that we could go out and notify the public. Our cyber experts actually think we're moving very quickly in this and that what we should have done is waited longer until we could tell people specifically what had gone on. But we've decided as a best practice to go out and let everybody know this incident has taken place. They can go to our microsite and get all the details on it. And if they're concerned, they can go and actually get these cybersecurity benefits. And if I might add, our cybersecurity firms have advised us that uh, the risk is to our customers in connection with this cyber attack is quite low. They've been monitoring the dark web. They've been monitoring other sources where this data may show up, and it's, it's not out there. Okay, speaking to Charles Brown, President and CEO of Life Labs on the cyber attack on the company's uh, security system, 15 million Canadian patients, including a lot here in British Columbia. 
Did you guys not have encrypted security systems here? I mean, what do you say to the patients here that trusted you with their personal information? So we've been investing in cybersecurity for years, and we've built up our systems. What this has taught us, and I think what this is a message really for, you know, any business, whether you're in healthcare, whether you're other industry, whether you're government, what we're seeing is these attacks are getting more sophisticated, they're getting more prevalent, and what it means is we've all got to work together and basically do more to stop these attacks. But we have been making investments. You mentioned that after you guys discovered the breach and the theft of this information that you actually made a payment to the hackers to get the information back. How much did you pay? So I can't go into what we paid because that's part of the ongoing police investigation. What I can tell you is it wasn't an easy decision, but we decided what did we think our customers would want us to do? And we thought they'd want us to take every step possible to get the data back. And so that's why we negotiated and made a payment. How do you know the information was not misused before they gave the information back to you? So our cybersecurity experts, like I say, they've been looking in the dark web. They've been looking for the locations where this data would typically show up, and it's not showing up there. And then if I might add, in these cases, what we've seen in other instances is when organizations have made a payment, the data has not shown up, whereas if organizations did not make a payment, it's been exposed on the Internet almost immediately. All right. Our our BC Information and Privacy Commissioner, Michael McAvoy, today is calling this breach absolutely devastating for the people affected. I mean, I I understand you're trying to downplay it, and you're you're saying that the, the information, there's no evidence the information is being misused here, but man, oh man, that is a lot of personal sensitive information there, including lab tests and all the other information. Uh, this is a devastating uh, situation for the people whose information has been compromised. Right, will you, will you uh, cooperate with all the authorities here as they launch an investigation into what happened here? So we have been cooperating with the authorities and what you will have seen even in their announcement is this happened at the end of October and we informed them at the start of November that this had happened. So we're cooperating with all the organizations. Um, We're doing everything we can. You know, our customers can go to the microsite and learn more details. And, you know, we're being as transparent as we can on this to keep people informed about what's happened. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thank you. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Charles Brown, president and CEO of Life Labs. Let's talk about some of the developments so far with my guest, Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News in Victoria. Hi, Keith. Thanks for coming in. Hello, Smitty. Let's talk about Surrey. We've been talking about this wild city council meeting last night that I know you were following, and you've been following the developments on the story today with uh, Mayor Doug McCallum under a lot of heat on this uh, Surrey City budget, which he got through. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it pa- the budget passed five mm-hmm. to four. He's lost a bunch of his councillors, but he's still hanging on to that majority there. But it all comes down to the fight over a new police force to replace the RCMP. What's your take on it? Well, I was going to need more than this budget passing to get a police force in Surrey. Uh, I still 
subscribe to the theory that uh, Wally Opel has been appointed by the government here to rag the puck, to draw this thing out as long as possible, uh, to take it past the next election cycle, both provincially and potentially municipally. I think uh, McCallum, if nothing else, I think he's ensured a, a higher voter turnout in the next municipal election out there because there was a lot of people at that meeting, a lot of anger on both sides. I don't think he handled it particularly well, but it was sort of a, a, a tough situation to be in. But I think this has just exposed uh, a lot of anger that exists in that municipality right now, and a lot of it's aimed at Doug McCallum. Isn't he just doing what he said he would do, though? I mean, the guy said, look, I'm going to get rid of the RCMP, bring in a local police force. That's, that's what he's doing. That's one of the things he promised, but I heard your earlier guest, one of the councillors there who claims he was sort of um, muzzled by McCallum, saying he also promised other things that wasn't just about one ticket item here. It wasn't just about a Surrey police force. It was about improvements on a number of things that he says the budget fails to do. So I suppose McCallum, yeah, he he did uh, run on a, on a promise to bring in a municipal police force. But I go back again. I've said, you know, I've talked about this before. A municipal election, it's low voter turnout. This is a pretty big ticket item here, and he was elected really when you boil it all down because there was a split in the vote on the other two candidates. Fourteen percent of the eligible voters voted for Doug McCallum, and I'm not sure he can can really state with much certainty that he's got some sort of huge mandate from the people of Surrey. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, if you do the numbers on, you do the math on, it was a 33% overall voter turnout. There was a real three-way split for mm-hmm. mayor. Uh, he, McCallum ended up getting 41% of the vote. I mean, you do the math, you got like 13.5% yep. of all eligible voters. But, I mean, that's our system. I mean, how can you say that's it is not a, a mandate? He well, won. It is a system, but I think uh, mayors have to be careful sometimes, I think, to over, not to overreach, thinking that they've got the backing of every neighborhood in town. And you see other municipalities, I think, over the years, mayors are reluctant to go too far ahead of the electorate because, again, a lot of people don't vote, but they all pay taxes. And I think this is the danger McCallum's going to run into. He might run into a buzzsaw come the next election should he choose to seek re-election because right now I think the most popular guy in Surrey seems to be the mayor and uh, he's not doing a lot to defuse that situation. What about a referendum now mm. on a Surrey Municipal Police Force? I mean, you've even got Ken Hardy, who's a Liberal MP. Yeah. Normally, you'd think he wouldn't want to wade into something as toxic as this or as polarized, but he said, look, I think there should be a referendum. We better do a do-over on this Municipal Police Force <laughs> idea. Is that even possible? Well, I... <laughs> It is possible, I assume, uh, but uh, whether it's politically doable is another question. I don't think McCallum wants to see a no, referendum. No, McCallum won't do I don't it. think the NDP government, I mean, as much as they've handed this off to Wally Opal, they're just sitting back and saying, you guys have a live hand grenade right now. We don't <laughs> want to play with that thing. You guys deal with it. So I think this is very much an orphaned uh, issue with only Surrey dealing with this thing, and you've got the community divided on a, on a profoundly significant issue, the likes of which we really haven't seen before. Okay, speaking of Wally Opal, of course, the former Liberal Attorney General who was brought in here mm-hmm. by the government to kind of ride herd on this whole thing as they transition to a local police force in place of the RCMP. I mean, even that, there's been there's been uh, divisions between McCallum and Opal mm-hmm. about the timing of this thing because McCallum was even out there saying, well, we're going to have a critical report on this whole transition delivered this month to the BC government. Opal said, no, you're not. No. It's not It's not done yet. <laughs> and by the way, this thing is, he keeps using words like, this is complicated. It's complex. It's going to take a long time. He says it's going to take two or three years. Yeah, well, not, not surprised. We predicted that at the beginning. This was uh, not going to be a quick process. 
Doug McCallum's track record since he came to mayor, he came mayor. Remember, he promised he could build the Sky Train to Langley for like same amount of money. Same amount of money. Never yeah. ever showed any proof that that was possible. Just sort yeah. of said that, and we're supposed to take that statement at face value. He's also said that the police could be done like tomorrow. It was just an easy thing to do. Again, no other than that one report that's commissioned. There's really no evidence this is going to be a, a quick process. It is a complex matter. I think Wally Opal is probably crossing all his T's, dotting all his eyes, and then he's going back and doing it all over again. Because I think that's the secret mission for the provincial government is to drag this thing out as long as possible. Yeah, I think the BC government and a guy like Mike Farnworth, Solicitor General, probably doesn't want to touch this thing with no. a ten foot pole. I mean, some people were suggesting to me t- today, well, McCallum's not going to call a referendum. Maybe a referendum is not a bad idea. McCallum's not going to no. do it. Do you think the BC government's going to do it? I don't think they want any part of this. I don't think I agree with you. I don't think they want to be anywhere near this thing. This is a a political hot potato. It's everybody involved in it is going to get, I think, a bit of shrapnel here. And uh, I don't think Mike Farnworth wants to be one of those victims. Okay, let's talk about an interesting story, Keith, that you've been following as well, and that's uh, Jimmy Patterson, BC's best-known billionaire here, um, bowing out of a bid to buy Canfor, the big uh, forestry mm-hmm. operation. What's the background here? So Jimmy Patterson's company owns 51% of Canfor. They're already the majority owner. They wanted to take the, the uh, company private uh, so it was not subject to the vagaries of stock prices and markets and stuff. They could just manage the company on their own. But they failed to get a majority of the minority st- uh, stockholders. They needed, they needed 50% plus one of the minority stockholders. They got 45%. Uh, some of these stockholders, uh, talking to some of the officials close to the deal today, you know, these uh, people thought that the share price of $16 was too low. They thought they could get a better deal on that. I note now the share price is now less than $13. So in retrospect, wow. maybe that price looks better. But Canfor, like any other forest industry in BC, is going through a terrible time right now. Yeah. And it's. Have they got a bunch of their mills shut down? Or? They've got a lot of operations shut down or curtailed. Some of the mills have been closed permanently. They're trying to switch to a more value added type of product, just getting away from the old-fashioned milling two-by-fours, but that's going to be a lengthy process. Uh, they are trying to swap tenures with companies. Uh, it's a complicated time in the forest industry. There's a lot of layoffs and, and mill closures, which is kind of surprising that the shareholders here didn't take the money and run. I mean, this was a $16 a share. It was a billion-dollar takeover, cash deal. This wasn't, you know, it was all there. Uh, they could have taken the money and uh, and got out clean, but they decided to stick around, I think, on the somewhat naive hope that somehow uh, these companies are going to rebound. There's a restructuring going on in forestry, the likes of which we haven't seen before. This is not a, a boom and bust cycle. This is a real restructuring of the forest industry, which makes Canfor, I think, maybe its best days are behind it in terms of that share value. But you know, the major- they failed to secure uh, a majority here. Patterson could take another run at this down the road, and he may well do that a year or two from now. But right now, it's a, the deal's off. Okay, so Patterson's a smart guy. He's a billionaire for a reason. He knows how to make money. The fact that he was trying to swing this deal in the first place, do you think that's a good indicator or a bad indicator for the future of the company? Well, I think it, it, Patterson and his right-hand man, Glenn Clark, former Premier of VC, uh, also a pretty smart guy. I mean, they thought this was the right move for them, for Patterson's company, and for Canfor. Uh, Canfor is the biggest forest company in BC, but it also has operations in Sweden and uh, overseas, and, and they are trying to sort of ch- take the part, the company in a slightly new direction in terms of value-added products. But uh, this Jimmy Patterson and Glenn Clark don't make 
any, as far as I know, bad business calls. They make yeah. good calls, and they they like to take over companies. Uh, they restructure them. It may mean some job loss, but at the end of the day, they try to make the company more profitable. And I think that's what they wanted to do with Canfor. And they could do that if they had 100 percent of the of the pie, and they've got 51 percent right now. What's going on with the strike? We talked about this last week that this brutal strike yeah. affecting uh, Western Forest Products, another big forest company on Vancouver Island. 3,000 people out of work for over five months. It was interesting to see Premier John Horgan putting down a marker in the last few days saying he wanted this thing solved, and he wanted it solved fast. And he was even talking about, well, maybe I'll get it solved this weekend. No. The weekend's over. You you told me last week it wasn't going to get yeah. done on the weekend, and you were right again. What's going on with that strike? Yeah, the two sides. I mean, there's a real... Uh, any reason for optimism here. I mean, it's been going on into its sixth month now. Vince Reddy, the miracle worker uh, mediator, is supposed to be involved. He can't get it done here. What I wonder, though, Mike, is uh, why hasn't the government... I just can't imagine a B.C. government under Mike Harcourt, Glenn Clark, or Gordon Campbell allowing something like this to drift for five, six months without any action at all. And there are a number of things the labor minister can do. First of all, he can call the two sides into his office and scream at them and, and you know bang some heads here, which we've seen other labor ministers or premiers do that in the past. He can appoint what's called an industri industrial inquiry commission to go right. in there yeah. and have an inquiry and say exactly what's going on here. Cooling off period? Well, you, you need a legislation to do that. But he's right. got a ministerial order that can send someone in there to take a look at what's going on and hopefully facilitate an end of the dispute. Now, he does have Vince Ready there. Everybody's got a lot of respect for Vince Reddy. He gets he gets deals done, but the fact that Vince Reddy can't get this thing done speaks volume of how complex and how far the two sides are apart. Okay, speaking of John Horgan, you sat down with him for a traditional kind of year-end interview with him, and I know one of the questions you asked him about was, will there be an election in 2020? He can legally govern until the fall of 2021, but that doesn't prevent him from going to the lieutenant governor. He could do it today if he wanted and say, look, I want to drop the writ now. I want to go early. What's your read on the potential for a snap election in the new year? I think he was pretty adamant, no, but as we both know, that's subject to change. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's one this spring. I think the window starts opening for him to call an election maybe in the fall of 2020, yeah. maybe the spring of 2021. The other thing to keep in mind, and you've written about this, the Green Party still holds the key yeah. here. Uh, the Greens at some point have to establish their own identity here that is not just the NDP light. If they want to go into the next election as the junior partner of the NDP, they're just going to get vanquished. And yeah. that history shows that's what happens to the third party that supports another party in power. They've got to carve out their own identity. And I think that means taking the NDP on and, if need be, defeated in the legislature yep. on a critical issue. And I don't think that happens uh, this year. But I think well, Why not, could, though, with a new leader? I mean, yeah, well, that's uh, Andrew dynamic. Weaver is yep. stepping down next month. Yep, yep. And, that, and uh, you know, we've been trying to figure out what does that do to CASA, the Confidence and Supply Agreement, right. which was signed by Weaver, right. uh, not by necessarily the new leader, unless Adam Olson or Sonia Furston will become, the city and MLA's become, become leader. So that's another wrinkle here that you have yeah. to take into consideration. I don't think Horgan wants to call an election right now. He was telling me he figures he's at the halfway point of his mandate. Well, he is. If you, if you figure the mandate goes to the fall of 2021, that is we're at the halfway point. So he says he's still got things to do. But, you know, as you know, circumstances change. I think the window may open in the fall, but more likely the spring. I wonder if maybe he's hoping that there is some sort of a breach with the Green Party, that a new Green Party leader does come in and decide we got to get out from under this guy's shadow and it forces an election and it also it, it gives Horgan kind of an excuse to go back yeah. to the voters because i just think that there are certain elements in this government and this party right now that are thinking you know what 
we've had a pretty charmed life here for the last two years in minor in a minority government situation. Things are going not too bad. There's storm clouds on the horizon. Mm-hmm. It could get worse later. Let's go now while we can. Yeah, I think the veterans in the caucus don't want to go right now. They they waste they spend a lot of time in opposition. They don't want to go back there. You know, they don't want to. Uh, but you're right. I mean, uh, looking forward, the finances don't look good for this government. Right, There's right. going to be some cost pressures. Uh, they're not going to be able to fulfill a lot of their spending promises. ICBC still a mess. ICBC's it could be a teacher strike. Well, um, yeah, David Eby says ICBC could literally become, in his word, a catastrophe for the government, yeah. and and that, that shows no signs of disappearing. So, yeah, the problems are mounting on their plate, and it, it, there is a sentiment, I'm sure, like uh, let's let's call an election sooner than later. But also, you need a, a reason to call an election. Right. The electorate, there's lots of history. Well, that's why of the I say maybe the Green Party gives them a reason. That could be. I mean, that, yeah. and maybe that's that's the out he's looking for. But I don't think that's going to happen this spring. I think if we're talking election, I think it's still more likely the fall or the spring of 2021. Thanks for coming in. All right. All right. That's Keith Baldry. He's the Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News in Victoria. Let's talk about effective parenting now. If you got young kids at home, they're no doubt getting excited about Christmas, all the presents they're going to get. But experts say it's also important. Children are taught to be compassionate and kind toward other people. It's not all about me, me, me and all the presents I'm going to get. It's about other people, too. So how do we foster empathy and caring? in our kids. My next guest has written a very timely book on that topic. Best-selling author Deborah McNamara joins me now. Her new book is The Sorry Plane, and it's based on her own experiences as a mom. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Mike. How many children do you got? Two. Okay, and they're growing up now, right? They're teenagers now. Yeah, they're both teenagers. Right. So w- when they were little, did they ever bicker and <laughs> not get along? <laughs> I think you know the answer to yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. Yes, of course. Yeah. How did you come up with the title of the book? Because this is an interesting story about your own children came up with that, right? Yeah. Well, it was actually based on my uh, four-year-old story. I would ask her uh, after they were fighting, you know, uh, cue them up that an apology was often required for each other. Yeah. Um, And uh, one of them said that she didn't have any sorries in her and that they'd all flown away and out the window. And I asked where they were going. And she said they were going to Paris on the sorry plane and they weren't coming back. So it was her... (laughs) It was her imagination that the uh, title came from. Okay, so that was her way of saying she didn't want to say sorry? Exactly. To her sister? Okay. <laughs> okay, the stories have all fl- flown away. Um, how does the book foster empathy and caring in kids? Yeah, the, the whole purpose of the book is to orient us to where a good story comes from. And a good story, like we can make our children say lots of stuff, but it doesn't mean they actually mean it from a place of caring, from a place of emotion. What we really want is a child to feel remorseful. We want them to understand the impact of their uh, behavior on others and for them to care about not doing that again. And so the whole purpose of the book is to anchor us into uh, the fact that our words have to match the meaning that they have for us. Right. So when you tell a kid to say sorry to your brother, like I got teenage kids too. I got two mm-hmm. boys and sure, they would get into occasional little scrap, I suppose, when they were smaller. And that's one of the most common things you say as a parent, right? Say say sorry to your brother, say sorry to your sister. But you think that that, so you say that that could do more harm than good sometimes though, right? Well, if it detaches a child from their caring and caring, and, and so words become divorced from caring, then yeah, yeah. We, we teach our children to just give performances that are devoid of any meaning. And, and the, the, the problem with that is, is that when we're not looking, uh, children can't use their caring to do the right thing. Right. So how do you get your kids to say sorry and really mean it? 
I asked them, you know, do you have any stories in you? Uh, if you do, this isn't a time to um, acknowledge what you've done, to make amends, you'll figure it out. Um, but just to cue the child or to let them know that uh, when their caring comes back, that they know, they know how to take care of it. Right. Right. I think there was a song once that said, sorry is the hardest word. I think oh. there's probably some truth to that. Do you think that's especially true for kids? Especially if they're upset, right? You know what? I think kids have an easier time than adults. I think adults and their ego get in the way a lot more than, than children. I think when children are in the moment and they're truly feeling their caring feelings, I think they're very generous with it. I think adults, uh, we feel all sorts of guilt and shame that often gets in the way of uh, our true heartfelt apologies. Right. So what, what sort of advice would you give to parents out there who are listening and say, yeah, I want my child to be a sensitive, caring child who cares about other people. Do you have any tips on how to foster that? Yeah, it's actually quite a remarkable thing, and it's very common sense, is that where does caring come from? Uh, if you teach it, uh, then you'll uh, kill it, really. I mean, the more you try to teach a child to care, uh, the more it doesn't uh, work that way. If you reward it, if you praise it, you're going to be in trouble as well. The, the key to caring is actually through relationship. When you feel cared for, your capacity to care for others opens up. So it's an instinct and it's an emotion that comes from feeling cared for. So that's what we have to focus on as adults, is to make sure that our children feel cared for by the adults who are responsible for them. Sure, yeah, I, I can see that. But you got to be, uh, you got to have some rules though, right? I mean, people, have, <laughs> kids have got to take responsibility for their actions, right? Is, isn't that an important thing to teach kids? Well, we, I wish we could teach this. It would be a lot easier. Actually, we have to wait for uh, good development to deliver us uh, much more mature kids who have self-control, who have emotional regulation. Uh, part of this rests on development in the brain. Uh, the five-year-old, uh, the five to seven-year-old shift when children start to get a lot more emotional control, uh, you know, they're on their way, but underneath, uh, you know, five years of age, oh, they don't have any emotional control. And yeah. um, and we need not to take it so personally, you know. What about um, maybe saying to a child, can you put yourself in the other person's position or is that too complex a, a concept for, for a smaller kid? Like I'm thinking about the golden rule, right? Treat treat other people the way you would want them to treat you, which is like a pretty sound principle, right? Or or can a really young kid kind of understand that? Yeah, this is a great question. And developmentally, uh, a child needs to be usually past the age of five to seven uh, because there's brain development that is required to be able to focus on your own self as well as someone else at the same time. Preschoolers only do one person, one feeling, one thought or emotion at a time. They don't think twice. Uh, They're very impulsive. So for true empathy and to consider someone else at the same time that you consider yourself, uh, you need some developmental um, sophistication. So that's usually after the age of six. And that's typically when we start to uh, convey this message to children, which should hopefully resonate for them. Where can people get your book? Oh, all the bookstores online, kids' books, chapters, Amazon, all those great places. Okay, that sounds, yeah, everywhere. Okay. <laughs> All right, Deborah, good luck with it. Thank you very much for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. I appreciate it. That's Deborah McNamara. She's an author, educator, and a clinical counselor. All right. Welcome back to the program. Mike Smith filling in for Simi. That's not the sound of a protest rally on the front steps of the legislature. That's actually Surrey City Hall last night. And a wild meeting of Surrey City Council. Councillors voted five to four in the city's controversial budget. The budget includes no additional money to hire any new police officers this year. That has some people upset as the city drives toward Mayor Doug McCallum's promised local police force 
to replace the RCMP. Wild meeting last night. Let's check in with the mayor now. Doug McCallum is on the line. Mayor McCallum, thank you for doing this. Good good afternoon, Mike, and to your listeners. Thanks a lot for coming on. There was a wild meeting last night. It's, it, at times, it sounded like it was getting out of control. At one point, you and your uh, Surrey safe, safe Surrey councillors got up and walked out. Uh, at one point, you were saying there'd be no debate on some of the motions out of safety reasons. Your thoughts on that wild meeting last night? Well, I think the meeting was very unsettling. Um, council chambers is a, a, a place that people have to res- respect. It's a, a place where different opinions are, but we need to sit and listen to each other and understand the process. It's not a place to be yelling foul names at councillors and shouting at, at the council and not allowing any of the councillors to talk. That's not a place for council chambers. And so the people that were there that were, were doing that, um, they have constantly doing them, and just about all of them are with safe, safe, uh, safe RCMP. They do it at public functions. Um, your reporters have heard them at public functions call our councillors unbelievable names. I can't even re- repeat them on air. That's no place. There's no respect for those people to to be making those type of comments um, in our city and in and in the public, and especially in council chambers. At one point, you and your safe Surrey councillors got up and walked out of the chamber. Why why did you do that? Were you afraid things were getting out of control in there? Yeah, we were feeling that um, the crowd was, um, I guess, unsettling, and um, we had a protocol that we talked to all councillors. Um, when when we started our term, that if we felt that the room uh, or the audience was getting a little bit of under un, out of control, the best way to get it quiet is for everybody to walk out and just take a recess for five or ten minutes and um, and then come back in. Most cases, that's that always works. In this case, unfortunately, um, four of them didn't move out and. By having them stay in, then the noise continued shouting back back and forth between two groups. Okay, at, at one point during the, the proceedings as well, Mayor McCallum, you said that there would be no speakers on some of the motions there on the budget for safety reasons. Could you expand on that? What was your safety concern there? Yeah, the, the, the crowd was getting very un, unsettling. They were calling names to counselors. They were yelling at us um, and standing up and shouting. And we couldn't be heard at all. Um, and councils debated this um, this budget for probably two months now. We've had many, many meetings. All of the councils have had a chance many times to um, do their point, and that's fair. That they they all know where each of them stands. Um, this wasn't really where um, the debate on the um, on the debate on the um, budget takes place. It takes place before final reading it takes place and it took place about a month ago in council chambers so um, this is final uh, debate and and like final uh, approval basically even in um, in um, when we do bylaws and zoning and so forth is just a formality to make it legal as far as the budget's concerned and so I felt that they had all had a chance um, to um, debate it and the crowd was unruly. They were calling us names. So we decided that we would just go ahead and um, do the vote on the budget. Okay. okay, that's very unfortunate, though, isn't it, when you're passing a budget and you're not allowing councillors to speak? I mean, I spoke to your colleague 
Councillor Stephen Pettigrew this morning on earlier today on the show, who said that, that it was a dark day for democracy last night. How do you respond to that? Well, I don't think it was. I, I think that's um, how uh, um, democratic um, organizations or councils or provincial work. Um, you hear lots of debate um, in it, but the crowd is always respectful of it. And in this case, the crowd wasn't respectful. And and the type of comments they were shouting at us were um, words that I can't repeat on the radio. And they were coming from the Save RCMP group because they had yeah. done it publicly with us um, every public meeting we went to. So um, they basically are out of control and they're very disrespectful. And so we decided that uh, we would go ahead with the budget. Um, we did have a debate in front of a public um, in a council chamber about a month ago, and all council had a had a chance to debate the budget in council and on air, is because ours are live stream about three weeks ago, and um, so they had lots of opportunity to debate the budget. Okay, this is a very controversial budget. No new money in there to hire new police officers or firefighters. There's been a lot of criticism over that. What do you say to a guy like Dwayne McDonald, for example, the commanding officer of the Surrey RCMP, who says he's very concerned about this budget, he's concerned about police services in the city of Surrey, he wanted 12 new cops this year, he's not getting them. What do you say to him? That's not true, Mike. I sat down with him, Dwayne, um, before the budget, and um, the way uh, we determine number of officers that we are needed um, and also with the fire chief and the n number of firemen we want, it's up to those two chiefs to decide what they need to place the, the um, city. With Dwayne, who, by the way, has left us now, um, he said to me very clearly when I asked him is that this is a transition period and that um, it's probably a good idea um, to get into the transition and, and not hire any more officers. And the reason for that is in the contract with the RCMP, when we ask to have, let's say, 12 officers, we don't get them for a year. In the contract, they have up to a year to deliver those officers. So, in fact, if we had put 12 in this budget, we wouldn't get them until the following year. That's in the contract. And it's a clause that the RCMP want in because they cannot deliver RCMP officers quickly. And yeah. so, they, th th so, again, he understood that. And because we were being into hiring our own officers probably in the middle of, of the next year, it was decided uh, between us that we wouldn't put any requests in for it. The same for the fire chief. We, I asked him, and he said that he can, get, he can do with none this year. Um, and next year, we probably will be looking at a new uh, fire hall in, um, in our city center, and we'll probably be looking at about 30 firefighters to okay. staff that new fire hall in, in our city center. Right. So... Both of those chiefs had indicated that they can either keep our city safe with what they have, um, and so we felt uh, as a council that um, that this particular year we wouldn't put in any increases. All right, speaking to Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. Mayor McCallum, there's still a lot of people out there, though, who, f who feel disappointed in the policing plan that you've put forward to get rid of the RCMP and bring in a new municipal police force especially with no new cops with their boots on the ground. This is a growing city. There's a crime problem in the city. Most, pe most experts will say you need more cops. What do you say to people who's, who, say, who feel bitterly disappointed they're not seeing more police officers? 
Well, I, I think that when I go out in the community, I would say the community is completely and majority is well in, in favor of having our own police force. And they are also in favor of the plan we put put forward because when we start with our police board, which we hope to get very soon, their very first job is to hire a police chief. His very first job is to look out over next year and determine how many police officers he needs to hire to make our city safe. That's the process every city uses. So if he, in fact, does come through and said we need more than what we have now in RCMP, then council is well aware that we will um, hire those. But for the budget now, before we have our new chief, and, and our current chief has, has now left us, we're gonna, we decided to stay with a status quo budget. Okay, but you've still got a lot of disappointed people out there, including business leaders in the city of Surrey. What do you say to the Surrey Board of Trade and the, their leader there, Anita Haberman, who yesterday put out a news release expressing disappointment with this budget? She's, she said that even maybe the provincial government should step in here and do a review to see if the city's got enough cops and if the city's safe. What do you say to her? Well, the Surrey Board of Trade has turned to a political party. Um, everybody in Surrey knows that. Um, the Board of Trade doesn't represent all Surrey. It only represents um, city centre. We have a Board of Trade in South Surrey. We have a Board of Trade in Cloverdale. And we have a Board of Trade in um, Clayton. So they don't speak for all of Surrey. And their attitude lately has been a political party rather than a Board of Trade that should be just dealing with the businesses in our city centre and helping them out in a lot of areas. Um, and And so... Their comment to me, and, and it's well known on council, is they've just become a political party, and, and okay. that's unelected. So um, that's how we look at their comments. Last question for you, Mayor McCallum. There are more people out there now saying that maybe we should have a rethink of this local police idea. Let's have a referendum on it. Uh, coming up here at the after the news, I'm going to be speaking to Ken Hardy, local MP here, recently re-elected for the Liberal Party. Uh, he says there should be a referendum on whether the city should move to a local police force. Your thoughts? My, my thoughts have been very clear every year, and I've been mayor for nine years. Every year, um, I have said the referendum is the election. It's every four years. It is a, a referendum. We were very clear on what we were going to run. If we got elected, we were going to have our own city police. We were going to have SkyTrain, and we we're going to have smart development. We were very clear. We said it over 100, 200 times in speeches. I was very clear. That's the referendum at election time. And it will be another referendum in another three years. That's the way I look at So, And also, Mike Farnworth has said publicly very clearly there will be no referendum. So there will not be any referendum on our police in the city of Surrey. Mayor McCollum, thanks for coming on. Okay, thank you, Mike. And, right. and um, a, a, a good, happy season to all your listeners, and a Merry Christmas. Thank you. Same to you. That is Doug McCallum, the mayor of Surrey.